God. And we are continuing this week in our look at Luke's Gospel. And we are in this early portion of the book where Luke is telling these infancy stories, these two stories, uh, stories of two very special births, and those of John the Baptist and of Jesus. John the Baptist, of course, would be born first, and his ministry would begin first. He would prepare the way for Jesus to come. Jesus would be born second, and though he would come second, he would be greater than John. He would be the savior of the whole world. And so last week we looked at the announcement of John's birth in Luke 1, 5 through 25, and how an angel, the angel Gabriel, came and told his father Zechariah, an elderly priest, that his elderly wife Elizabeth would have a son who would be filled with the Holy Spirit and who would help to usher in a great work of God. And though Zechariah and his wife were both very old and could never have children, God would miraculously make sure that this happened. And the story ended last week with both Zechariah and Elizabeth being silenced in different ways. Zechariah, due to a temporary punishment for his disbelief, he was struck mute for a time. And Elizabeth, due to hiding herself away during the first half of her pregnancy. But in spite of their silence, God's work goes on. And this week we will see the same angel as last week, the angel Gabriel. But today he will travel to a very different place for an even greater purpose. And our passage today will be Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. And as usual, if you have any questions about anything in the sermon today, we invite you to text them to this number over there, and we will address them on a podcast that we put out each week. So there's a way to interact and have some feedback with that. You are, of course, welcome to talk to me in person as well, and not only listen to me on podcast. Uh, but let's read here. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Because in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived the Son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is our text for this morning. And we talked last week about how Luke, in his gospel, is taking a long time to get to his main character. That Jesus doesn't appear in the flesh until chapter 2, verse 7, 86 verses into the book until he shows up. And Jesus doesn't speak until chapter 2, verse 49. That's some 128 verses into the book. 
But in spite of his absence in the early portions of the book, his presence is still felt. And this week's passage is the first time that Jesus is mentioned by name, and we get this first impression of him. And so we're going to go through this piece by piece and talk about what we can learn from this. In verses 26 and 27, look at those. Luke begins this section with a phrase. He says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. In the sixth month, and that would cause us to ask if we were just dropping into this without any context, the sixth month of what? And this, of course, goes back to verse 24, where it says that Elizabeth had hidden herself for the first five months of pregnancy. But then in the sixth month, now something else is happening. So this is right after that. But I'd like to contrast this with how last week's passage began. If you look back to verse 5, and when it was introducing last week's passage, it said, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. We talked about how Herod was appointed by Rome, how he wasn't a true king. He was a puppet ruler of Rome. He was a reminder of Israel's oppression and the judgment that they were under. But he is done now, in a sense. He's actually never mentioned again in Luke's gospel. Luke has moved on from Herod. He's not an important person to him. He was a time marker. But now, time itself, history itself, is being marked by a new work. And so in the sixth month, since what? Since the angel came to Zechariah, since Elizabeth became pregnant. It started with the announcement of John's birth and his coming. And now six months later, the angel Gabriel is at work again. And this time he is sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And this is a very interesting thing, because if Jesus had not been from Nazareth, you and I would never have heard of Nazareth. It was never mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures. It was never mentioned in the intertestamental, like apocryphal works. It was never mentioned in the works of the historian Josephus. It was never mentioned in the writings of the rabbis. It was not a significant place at all, except that Jesus ended up being from there. It was years ago, I spent some time with a guy who was from Nebraska. He was a friend of a friend, and we were going to a conference together, and we spent three days with this guy from Nebraska. And I get the sense that this is the case with a lot of people from Nebraska, but he was very passionately from Nebraska. And he wanted you to know this. And I told him, I said, hey, you know, my grandfather was born in Nebraska. And this, like, gave me instant credibility with this guy. Like, oh, you're one of us. So he was intrigued. And then he said, well, where in Nebraska was your grandfather born? And I said, he was born in a town called Elsie, Nebraska. And though my new friend assured me, he said, I know every town in Nebraska. I know every single one, and I have never heard of that place. He wasn't convinced it was real. And this was 2004, so we didn't have smartphones to look up and confirm the existence of Elsie, Nebraska. And so he was so confident, though, that this that his lack of knowledge, you know, questioned its existence. He was so confident about it that he got to the beginning to doubt whether or not it was even a real place. <laughs> but I knew it was real because my grandpa was from there. I knew nothing else about the city of Elsie, Nebraska, other than that my grandpa was born there. And therefore, to me, it mattered. But it's an insignificant place. It's insignificant except for the fact that Les Miller was born there. And Nazareth is kind of like that. We only know it because of Jesus. 
Later, I did confirm the existence of Elsie, Nebraska. In the 2010 U.S. Census, they recorded a population of 106 people. Wikipedia even has a photo of downtown Elsie. It's a bank, a full barn, and some grain silos. So downtown. And Nazareth was similar, a small rural village. Luke was probably telling his readers that the city that Nazareth was in Galilee because they probably didn't know where it was, where it was otherwise. Like, they wouldn't have heard of it. So he's like, oh yeah, it's in this state. You're like, oh yeah, it's in Elsie. Well, where is that? Well, it's in Nebraska. Okay, well, now I have a general idea of that. But it was so obscure. So that's the point. It wasn't a prominent, it wasn't an important place, but the angel was sent there. And why? Because there was a person there he had to visit. He had to visit a virgin named Mary who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And of course, betrothal was like engagement, except that it was even more binding. You had to have a divorce to end a betrothal. But Joseph also hardly factors into Luke's story. He barely shows up in the account in the Gospel of Luke. But we are told one significant thing here about Joseph in verse 27, that he was of the house of David. And this was good because people might have thought that the line of David had been broken, that it had been lost. There hadn't been a king from the line of David over Israel for some time. But this is a direct contrast back to verse 5, that Herod was king of Judea. But he wasn't a true king, right? He wasn't from the line of David. But this is saying, look, there still could be a true king. Like in theory, the line of David still exists. But this guy, Joseph, He's nobody. He's just a guy living in Nazareth. So maybe in reality, is there going to be like a true king to come from this line? And so there was a news story in 2008 that I saw about George Washington's oldest living relative. So they tracked down some genealogy site and tracked down the oldest living relative of George Washington. George Washington, I believe, had no children, but this was his closest, closest living relative. And it was some 82-year-old guy named Paul Washington. And he lived in Texas. He was a retired regional manager for a building supply company. And in that day, he spent most of his time caring for his wife, who had Alzheimer's disease. So probably just a gem of a guy. But probably not anyone who was going to get on his wife's steed and save our nation. You know, we need somebody from the line of George Washington to set this nation right. And they're like, oh, we found him. He's Paul. He's an 82-year-old retired building supply manager. You know, he collects stamps. I don't know what he does. And Joseph seems kind of like that guy. It's great that they can still trace the line of David in this day, but this is the guy? He's just some guy. They're not kings anymore. So is this going to happen? But again, Joseph is not the focus. He's just needed here for his last name. Like he has the pedigree, like David's son. He's like a son of David. But God has always promised that the Savior he would send would be of the line of David. God still had promises to fulfill to the line of David. So this matters, but the key figure in the passage is his fiancée, Mary. Mary is a young girl. She's a Nazarene. She's from Nazareth. And perhaps most importantly for our story, she is a virgin. She's never been married, never even been sexually active. And I say that's most important about her, not because that's the most important thing about a person, but it is particularly integral to this story. And she is greeted by the angel in verse 29 when he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
This is, of course, the scripture from which the Roman Catholic Church gets the beginning of its prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Same wording there. But there's no basis in this or any other scripture for drafting prayers to Mary. Mary, as we'll see, is a great, admirable, believing woman. But not so much more than that. And she is not without sin, as some branches of the church have believed. So when Gabriel comes to her and he says, O favored one, greetings, O favored one. That phrase, O favored one, again, has often been translated as full of grace. And that's not wrong, but it's saying she is a recipient of grace. God is bringing grace to her. This is like saying that a pitcher is full of water. The water came from a spring, and now the pitcher is full of it. It has received that. So Mary is a recipient of grace. God has looked on her with favor, not because she earned it, but because of his kindness, his intention, his desire. She's full of grace because she received a lot of it. But why? Why did God choose Mary for this role? We're never actually told. And so we don't need to speculate a lot, but oh, some have speculated a lot about this. And not just Roman Catholics. Not just them. I was reading this week, and I studied the passage, I try to read different commentaries on it when I get into my study. And I was reading in one of my Luke commentaries from a typically solid author, a Protestant evangelical, not a Roman Catholic, and I was interested in what he had to say about this passage, and he wrote this about Mary. He said, listen to this. He said, ever since Eve, God had been looking for a woman upon whom he could bestow his favor and trust, one upon whom he could bestow the highest of honors, the honor of becoming the virgin mother of God's incarnate son. City after city, century after century, woman after woman, God was looking for someone sweet enough, strong enough, and spiritual enough to give birth to the Christ. And now the search was over. The woman had been found. And I read that and I thought, oh no, oh no, that's not only a bit false, it's a bit cringy. Right? So you needed somebody sweet enough? No, she's just so, so sweet. You know, we've been looking for the sweetest woman ever. But we don't need to develop these grandiose visions about Mary. I don't think Mary would want us to develop these grandiose visions about Mary. Ironically, in that same author, this is literally the very next paragraph that he wrote, he said this, The words highly favored might as readily have come from Paul's pen as Luke's. They can be rendered graced of God or endued with grace. The day of grace had come. From now, everything was to be of grace. Mary needed grace to be a fitting vessel for the high honor that was to be hers. And in that, she was no different than us. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's the point. Mary is like us. And I think that's the biggest reason, you know, the angel comes, he basically says, hello. Greetings, our favorite one, the Lord is with you. And Mary, at verse 28, she's greatly troubled by this and trying to discern what it would mean. Why was she so troubled that the angel basically just said, hello? But I think that was the question, like, just trying to figure this out. Why me? Like, why are you coming here? Who am I? I'm just a small town peasant girl. She's not so different from you or me. So why would God be with her in a special way? And yet he is with her in a special way. And she's going down the sun. And though Mary is just like us, the sun will not be just like us. The sun will be very different from us in some significant ways. He, of course, will be like us in other ways. Look at verses 31 through 33, and all of the things said about Jesus. It says that her son, he would be named Jesus, and he would be great. 
meaning well above others in status and importance. He would be son of the Most High, indicating that he is not just human, he has a divine nature. He is the son of God. It's said that he would rule on the throne of David. We saw through his earthly father Joseph, he has the right to that. Again, the authentic kingdom that God promised, not the puppet throne of King Herod. This is, of course, what they were longing for, as we talked about last week. Someone to come to throw off the yoke of their oppression, to be their real king, and this is him. And not only that, but we read that of his kingdom, there will be no end. So an eternal kingdom, a never-ending kingdom, again, showing his divine nature, like he won't die. He's not the same as us. Well, he won't stay dead. We know the first part. But this is incredible news, and it leaves very dumbfounded. But our most pressing question is how this is going to happen. And again, this goes back to that key detail about her, which she brings out in the open in verse 34. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? I cannot be expecting a baby. There is no way. And we talked last week about how Zechariah questioned the angel. He said, how shall I know this? So you're going to have a sign. So how am I supposed to know this? And he got judged for it. He was punished for it. Mary is not punished for her question because it's a different kind of question. It's okay to ask questions. Zechariah, though, was asking for a sign that the angel was telling the truth. He wanted to know that God was really going to tell the truth. Mary believed this right away. She's like, okay, I get it. But like, she's not sure exactly what the angel is promising, and she needs some clarification here. Right? For Zechariah and Elizabeth to have a baby, it was a miracle, but like, it made sense in some way. Because one, it had happened a bunch of times before, like in the Old Testament. You know, God gives someone a baby who could never have a baby, even if they're too old by earthly standards. And two, it happened in the natural, regular way that, that babies come into the world. But I think Mary is just asking here, do you mean like right now? Or, like, you know, I'm about to get married, is it going to happen then? Like, I'll get married and then I'll have a child, or do you mean right, like right now? Like, what exactly are you saying here? Because a virgin giving birth had never happened before. And so Gabriel doesn't punish her, he gives her a clear answer in verse 35. Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. God would create this baby that would take up residence in Mary's womb. Mary is a passive recipient here. God will do this work. The baby will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And it should be noted that none of these terms here, uh, you know, coming upon you or overshadowing you, None of these are terms that have, like, sexual or physical connotations at all, right? Like, the Mormon church has taught that God has a physical body and conceived Jesus in the same way that human children are conceived. And that's disgusting and that's heretical, and you shouldn't believe any of that. God the Father doesn't have a body, and this is not an ordinary conception. It was a miracle. It was spiritual. But Luke says... When Mary's like, how's this going to happen? It's the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that word overshadow is like great word choice by Luke. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. He's using a Greek word here that was also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Luke is very familiar with. And it's in Exodus 40, verse 35. It says that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, right? The tabernacle, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. The cloud settled on it. That word settled, same Greek word here, is overshadowed. 
the cloud in Moses' day, which was the visible way that God showed his presence among his people, came upon the tabernacle, the visible residence of God in that day, the place where sacrifices were offered, the place where atonement was made, the tent of meeting, the place where God met with man in a relational way. So when Luke says that God will overshadow Mary, there are connotations there of God coming to dwell visibly among his people, to make atonement for their sins, and to meet with them. And this is what will happen through her son. And yes, this will happen in spite of Mary being a virgin. He will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and not have a human father, Jesus would be called holy. He would not have the same sin nature that we do. He'd have the same human nature, but not the exact same sin nature. Jesus would be able, if he maintained this righteous life, he would be able to be a perfect sacrifice for his people. And so Jesus had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in order to die for our sins. If there is no virgin birth, there is no salvation for sins. And God had always intended things to happen this way. If you go way back to the start of the Bible, the very first promise, right after Adam and Eve sinned, they were deceived by the serpent, and they sinned against God, and they're cast out of the garden. The very first promise of a Savior in Genesis 3.15, God tells uh, Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The offspring of the woman would defeat evil, not the offspring of the man and the woman. He says this only to the woman, only the woman. And Mary was Jesus's only human parent. So this was always God's plan. And now the angel comes to Mary and says, the plan is happening. And if you want to be extra amazed, look at what he says next. Your relative Elizabeth is now pregnant. And we didn't know this until now, that Mary and Elizabeth were related. They were relatives in some way. We don't know how. The word is very general, like they are related. And so they've been called cousins. I don't know why they always get called cousins. Maybe they were, but it's just a general term for a relative. So was she an aunt, a cousin, a great aunt, or a la Spaceballs, her father's brothers, nephews, cousins, former roommate? We don't know. But just know that they're somehow related. And Mary would have known that Elizabeth could never have kids. She probably knew that about her. So she'd know how miraculous it was that she was old, but she was pregnant. The point is in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Old person birth, I've done it plenty of times before. Virgin birth, I've never done this one yet. But why shouldn't he? He can do what he pleases because he is God. I remember once someone told me, he said, there's a lot of contradictions in the Bible. I said, well, like what one? And he said, well, there's a burning bush. The bush can't talk. I said, well, that's not a contradiction. That just means you don't believe in God. Like if God says, if he is who he says he is in the scriptures, he can do whatever he wants. All the miracles have more than plausible explanation if God is exist. If God is God, then he can do as he pleases. Nothing is impossible for him, and God is reminding Mary of that through Gabriel. You don't need an explanation for how I'm going to do everything I'm going to do. And Mary doesn't ask for one. She has here this most beautiful response of faith and submission in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to 
and no doubt for a thousand possibilities potentially running through Mary's mind as she thought of this. Will anybody believe me? And what will my parents think? What will my friends and other people in this village think? And oh, what will Joseph think? Is he even going to marry me at this point? Will I have to give birth to this baby alone? And how am I going to care for this baby? And even if all those other worries work out, how am I supposed to be a mother to the Holy Son of God? And if he's the true king, what does that say? Is there like a war on the horizon? What is going to happen? What will all this look like? Question after question, doubt after doubt, worry after worry, all on the table, and her only recorded response is, I'm God's servant who can do whatever he wants to do with me. And it's remarkable. It's almost enough to make me rethink uh, that earlier quotation. Maybe she was one of the most special people that the world had ever seen. Of course, we don't need to go too far. She was a sinner in need of grace. And God gave her the grace of being Jesus' mother and gave her here the gift of faith to respond in this way. And she responds in this way because God is at work in her. She's ready for whatever it will be. And it's not going to be easy. Note, at the end, the last thing we read in our text today is that the angel leaves her. There's nobody else to walk this path with her. He's not going to go tell the whole world about this. She is walking this path alone right now, but God is still with her, and her response shows that she knows that. I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever God says, I will do. I'll accept it. I'll receive it. And her response is very humble. Mary is not exalting herself. She's not saying, but what about me? Right? She sees herself rightly in relation to God, which is the essence of humility. That's what humility is. It is not thinking of, of yourself more highly than you ought, and it's being willing to sacrifice your own priorities for the sake of others. That's what it means to be humble, to have humility. Don't think too high of yourself and set aside your own you know, priorities to, to help others. And the more I thought about this passage, the more I began to see humility emerging as a main theme on two different ends of this passage. Because first we see Christ's humility, and then we see Mary's humility in response to the humility of Christ. And in that, she becomes a model for us. But think for a moment about what this announcement about Christ's birth says about the humility of Christ. Because obviously, whenever we see these like miraculous birth stories in the Bible, they're parallel to a bunch of things. And we should read this birth announcement to Mary in light of the many that have come before in the Old Testament. Like Mary here joins that long line of miraculous mothers, from Sarah to Rebecca to Rachel to Hannah to more. And there are plenty of parallels if you want to look for them. But this announcement is more directly parallel to the one that came right before it, which we looked at last week, the announcement of John's birth. And what is clear about this one is that it is the far more important announcement. Like the book could maybe get by without the announcement of John's birth, but not without this one. This is the more important announcement because John was preparing a way for the Lord. Jesus is the Lord himself. John was said to be great before the Lord, while Jesus is said simply to be great. His greatness is in and of himself, not in relation to anyone or anything else. He is self-evidently great. 
John would come as a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus would come as an eternal king on the throne of David. John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. John would prepare the people. Jesus would save the people. John would be a unique and special man, but still just a man. Jesus would be the Holy Son of God. It's not particularly close here. John, again, is only great in relation to Jesus. Jesus is great in and of himself. So this is the much more important announcement in Luke chapter 1. But in spite of Jesus being greater, the announcement of his coming is far humbler than John's was. John's birth was announced to noteworthy and respected people. We are told from the beginning that Zechariah and Elizabeth are called righteous. They are called blameless. People knew this about them. They were good and godly people. Whatever they might have thought about them being unable to have children, people knew they were righteous. They were blameless. There is no reputation here built up for Mary. We're just told that she's married. Right? Zechariah was a priest in Israel. Mary, just a girl. John was said to have come in response to many prayers, to long expectation. Jesus' coming is not mentioned in the same way. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were an old couple who had never had children, so the chances of them having a son were slim. Mary was a virgin. The chance of her having a son apart from divine intervention was literally zero. And perhaps most notably, the announcement of John's coming was made in the temple in Jerusalem holiest place, the most important site in the nation, the place where God had manifested his presence in previous generations, the place where kings and priests had spoken to and with and for God. And the announcement of Jesus' coming, in contrast, came to one of the most insignificant places in the whole world, a place where if Luke hadn't told you where it was, you'd have no idea where it even was. And so it's amazing. The most important thing in the history of the world is about to happen, and it is announced privately to a nobody in the middle of nowhere. But it's amazing stuff. God is coming to dwell with mankind. He's coming humbly as a baby. That in itself is remarkable. We'll have more opportunity to reflect on that in the coming weeks. He's coming as a baby, but he will be great. He's coming to fulfill the promises of God, to bring peace and justice to the whole world. And it's starting out here in Nazareth, in a place that nobody's ever heard of, with a young girl that nobody has ever heard of. Is this even right? Nazareth? Remember a few years ago, after the 2020 election, there was some controversy over how ballots had been casted. And Donald Trump announced that his team would hold a press conference to address the situation. And he said, it's going to be at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia. And everyone assumed that he meant the hotel where they'd have like a ballroom and a place to have a press conference, and that was near where they were counting the ballots. But then the hotel said, we don't know anything about it, and then Trump's team said, no, he meant Four Seasons Total Landscaping Business, which was like out off the highway in between an adult shop and a crematorium. And people wondered, wait a minute, was this on purpose? Did he mean to do this, or did he announce the hotel before it was booked? And then they couldn't get the hotel, and then they had to scramble. They're like, no, we totally meant Four Seasons Total Landscaping Business. Or was it a subversive tactic, like we're going to do something unexpected here to show that we are the, the, the candidate of the blue-collar workers and you know, all that sort of stuff. We may never know. 
But it happened. A press conference about national politics was held on the dirty loading dock of a landscaping company. And it was so unexpected that people assumed it must have been a mistake or a publicity stunt. And I don't know. I'm not here to determine that. But Jesus' birth announcement being made in Nazareth? That was no mistake. God was moving away from the temple intentionally. He's bringing his son to everybody. Everybody. Not just the priests. Not just those who could come to where the temple was. Everybody. Even in Nazareth. And Mary is emblematic of that. She's everybody. And her response to God is the one that everybody should have. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your words. She said this with just a promise of Jesus' coming birth. She said this. We live now on the other side of Jesus' birth, his death, and his resurrection. We don't just have promises about what he would do or who he would be. We can see what he actually did, who he actually was. We have eyewitness testimony of it. It's recorded in the word of God that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he taught the will of God and he lived it out completely, that he willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, that he took our place, he bore our punishment, he died for us, and he rose from the grave, and he ascended into heaven, and he commanded that the message about him go out into all the world to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus and you will be forgiven of your sins and you will become his disciple. And although he came into the world in humble circumstances and died in far more humble and even shameful circumstances, he is now risen and enthroned on high, given the name above every name. And we're told that every knee will bow to Jesus and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the humble Messiah, the suffering servant, is now our exalted King. So what is our response to him? It should be Mary's response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever your word calls me to do, I will do. I'm called to believe in Jesus. I will believe in him. I'm called to follow him. I will follow him. I'm called to suffer for him. I will suffer for him. Whatever it is, I will do. Mary was called to be the mother of the Messiah, and her response was, yes, Lord, whatever you want. You and I are called to be followers of the Messiah, to believe in him, to entrust himself, ourselves to him, and our response ought to be that same humble response, yes, Lord, whatever you want. We see ourselves rightly in relation to you. We don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We don't place ourselves above our Creator. We will submit to you, and we will come to you on your terms. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. We are the servants of the Lord. Let it be to us, as God has said. So think of where you are this morning. We come, each of us, into church with different life situations, different backgrounds, different circumstances, different beliefs even. When we come to church, and our intent, our desire here at this church is that each week you would see the gospel played out in various forms. That we would see God calling us in to worship him. That we would praise him for his holiness and greatness. That we would come to him for forgiveness, humbly repenting of our sins when we would receive it. And that we would receive the word of God. And then we come to commune with Christ at his table. And then we're sent out to go live in ways that are 
again, week after week, we are reminded here of the grace of God, and week after week, we have the privilege of being able to say with Mary, I am your servant, Lord, do with me as you please. Because Christ our King came to us humbly. He set aside the glory due his name to serve us. And he invites us now to respond humbly, to set aside our own will, to receive his grace, and to submit to it. And so as we will in a moment come to the Lord's table, let's consider our own experience in light of Mary's. God comes to us through Christ. He offers us his grace. We too are full of grace, if we will receive it. He offers us his grace. He offers us his presence. He invites us in to his story. Maybe not in the same way that Mary was invited in, but in a real way nonetheless. And we can do two things. We can hold God at arm's length and say, I don't know about all this. I'm not so sure. What would this mean for me? What would this mean for what I want? Or we can say, behold, we are the servants of the Lord. And it be to us according to the word of God. So may that be our heart's cry. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are indeed your servants. And we recognize that. We recognize that you have created us, that you have redeemed us, that you have called us by name, that you have loved us. And so we recognize that to be your servants is not some miserable thing. It's not some thing of drudgery. It's a great privilege. It's the greatest blessing that we will have. God, there's freedom in being your servant. There's freedom in recognizing ourselves in right relation to you. So help us to see that. Help us to see that our own will, our own desire, all the things that we might want ought to be set aside in service to you. And when we recognize, God, that you are good to us, that when we set things aside for your sake and we choose to follow you, we are setting aside our own wishes, our own wants, our own priorities, and we are receiving something far better. It is a good trade. It is a great exchange. We set aside our sinfulness, and we receive your righteousness, and we come to Christ in faith. And then we set aside our will for our lives, and we receive yours for us. And God, what a privilege that is to work for you, to know not just some drudgery of obedience, but to know the joy of the Lord as we walk and serve with you. So help us, God, to see whatever you may be calling us to in this moment of our life. Maybe we have to come and believe in Christ for the first time, to repent of our sins, to trust in him. Or maybe there's some sin, maybe we are Christians, we're following Christ, but there's some sin that we are holding on to, or something that we know we ought to do, but we haven't yet done it. God, give us the faith. Give us the grace to be able to say with Mary, we are your servants. Let it be to us according to your word. Let us serve you with gladness, trusting that you are good to us. God, you did give us your son. You sent the announcement of that to the city of Nazareth, reminding us that you are giving him to all people everywhere. And so we come to you now in this place, in this day, trusting that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ. So may we in turn humbly entrust ourselves to him and live for him, we pray in his name.